All right. We are here. So we are um, in, uh, I don't even remember what week this is, as far as the gospel changes everything. I want, actually want to say it's number four, maybe five. Um, but I, I had a beautiful picture where it says the gospel changes everything. I'm not sure what happened to it, but uh, it's not there. But this is where we are. And when we say this, the gospel changes everything. Oh, man, I'm free. I forgot. I don't have microphones. Look at this. I can move around. Uh, but I'm not because there's a camera and I got to stay still. So, but I feel, feel very feel invigorated. Is that the right word? I'm not sure. We're going to be talking about um, politics over the next couple weeks. And it's uh, ironic uh, because as I was standing there, I, I remembered that we have these, these flags in here. Let me just say a word about that. First Baptist, if you know them and, and their culture, um, that they have a typical Anglo old white congregation that meets here, uh, but very incorporated within that culture uh, is uh, a Karen church. And these are native people from, from Myanmar. And in Myanmar, uh, which is uh, Burma, uh, that they uh, were under intense religious persecution. And so in our culture, in the United States, we would champion, and I'm going to talk about it today, this idea of separation of church and state, uh, that I am kingdom of God focused before I am anything remotely kingdom of earth focused. And so we actually kind of got in the habit of removing these flags from in here. Uh, but, but, you know, I just forgot about it today. But again, but they look at those flags as a symbol of religious freedom, uh, which it should be that to us as well. <laughs> Uh, and so we just want to don't we just want to make sure that we we keep our priorities straight with making sure that Christ is the focus, the scriptures are the highest authority. Um, so we'll be we're going to be talking about uh, politics next over the next two weeks today and next week as well. And I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But I want to bring up a quote from uh, Tim Keller here from his book Center Church. He says this: To enter a culture, another main task is to discern its dominant worldview or belief systems because contextualized gospel ministry should affirm beliefs of the culture wherever it can be done with integrity. Our criticism of the culture will have no power to persuade unless it is based on something that we can affirm in the beliefs and values of that culture. In other words, what is it about the culture that would reject something that we believe as the church, but we can look at a value that they have and say, that's a good thing. Right? We, we care about homelessness, and, so, and they care about homelessness, but what, is, what are they saying that might be different than what we're saying? And we're going to, again, kind of look at maybe boots on the ground a little bit more next week on that. But what Keller's talking about, and he kind of uses this language of you've got to float your B doctrines on an A, a doctrine. So you take a B doctrine raft and you float it out on an A doctrine, and this is what he means. There was a, a group of uh, women uh, who were, uh, um, I forget there's kids in here that were in a, um, they were uh, enslaved, if you will, you know what I'm saying. And, and, and when they were freed by a Christian organization, they went to them and they're trying to teach about the love of Christ and, and Jesus loves you. But in their mind, that's exactly what their, their Johns, right, these men had been telling them. Oh, but we, we do love you. We're trying to care for you the best we can. And they, they were like, no, I don't want this Jesus guy. But then, all of a sudden, someone, they said, well, actually, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And then these ladies were going, okay, now that's a God that I can worship. I want there to be a God who's in control, even when it seems like it's chaos. But in the United States, that's flipped, right? I think we, as individuals, as people, struggle with the idea of a sovereign God. And we're like, no, God is love. 
right? So we got to know our cultures, and that's what it is. So we can embrace something like homelessness or abortion, and maybe we float those out on a raft of value of life, or what we use here is this idea of womb to tomb. That yes, there's a sanctity of life in the womb, but also all of life. And so that's that's where that's coming from. I'm just going to skip through a little bit here. We talked about this gospel, this creation mandate that, that we proclaim the gospel. It should motivate us not just to sit there and keep our faith to ourselves, but to go, go out and make steps and, and live a certain way in commitment to this creation mandate to see the gospel flourish. And then loving that would lead us to love our neighbors as ourselves, the way that Christ has taught us to, which ultimately leaves in a human flourishing. We talked about Jeremiah 29, this idea of that we want to seek the welfare of the city and that when we as a church are thriving and loving one another and bearing one another's burdens and even helping the community, all, all the ships in the harbor rise at one, at once. And so that's, uh, that's, 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 that's good. Okay, so in other words, when we say the gospel changes everything and what I want to focus on specifically, does that gospel impact who I vote for? Does it impact how I talk to others who are opposed to my viewpoint? And the answer, the answer is yes. So this week, I want to focus in on this myth of a political savior. I'm going to look at, there's a lot of passages and something to explain. It's going to be 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 22. That was just one passage that I put up, but there's a lot. So if you've got your Bibles, get ready to, you know, get your, don't lick your fingers. That's, we're not supposed to do that, but get them ready uh, or, or do the flipping thing on your phone. That's, that's the same thing. It's fine. But uh, also known as a biblical theology on politics. And so I want to look at a lot of scripture today. And so what does biblical theology mean? When we look at theology, it just simply means theos is God, and then ology is study of. It's a study of God in a biblical form as opposed to a systematic approach or a systematic way of thinking about things. So instead of taking a bunch of random verses, which we'll kind of do next week, more more of a systematic way of looking at it, we're going to look at this idea called progressive revelation. Now we're going to start in the beginning, and what, how, what is, what, how did God, what did God reveal about politics early on in Scripture? And our understanding of this is going to grow, and it's going to progress. It's never going to dip down. It's always going to keep climbing up. And so we take these key passages, and we're just going to walk through what is the storyline of the Bible when we look at politics. And so that's what we're going to be specifically looking at today. What's interesting is that in December of 2018. We talked about this. The title of the sermon was, If My Candidate Was Voted In, Then It Would Fix Fill-in-the-Blank. Now, that was 2018, right? I've never uh, preached on the eve of an election, of a presidential election. It's my first time uh, being a, a full-time pastor, preaching, teaching pastor, where we're on the verge of an election. I uh, have voted every year, but this one, again, feels different, and I know that. But yet, what you're not going to hear me say is you're not going to hear me trash one party over the other. I'm not going to say one is, is a hero over the other, that the kingdom of God should be up front and center. And so again, I preached on this. So if you, this was last, or like I said, in 18. And as we look at the, the grand old party or the democratic committee, all these different things to say, okay, what overlaps in this Venn diagram? What is it about that party that's good? What is it about this party that's good? But ultimately the kingdom of God should be our focus and that should inform, that should inform our politics. And I quoted my buddy, Tyler St. Clair from Detroit. He said, we worship the lamb of God, not some donkey or elephant, right? It's a pretty good, succinct way to put this. And there was so many quotes. A lot of my, a lot of my buddies in Acts 29, there was, they've been tweeting and, and putting things on Facebook like crazy. And I, I mean, I just had a, a litany of, of, of things that we could have said from that. But I, I want to look at now and just jump right into this, God's original 
governmental plan. That what was the goal? What did God initially set up? And what he sets up initially is called a theocracy. Again, theos means God. And then this krato, kreato in the Greek is just this idea of rule. So God's original plan is this idea of a theocracy, which is God is going to rule. God is going to be king. So I'm going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is after the Exodus. Moses comes and he gives the Ten Commandments. And God frees all of Israel in slavery from the Egyptians and leads them out into the desert. And this is what he says. And you're going to, you're going to hear some language that sounds very political. He says, the Lord. And again, if, it, if you see Lord in all caps in your English translation, that's the covenant name for, for Yahweh. The Lord your God commanded you, commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, right? Law, these laws. Carefully observe them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. But yet we wouldn't say we should obey our governmental laws in the United States with all of our soul, right? That would be a very weird way to put that. There's something different in this theocracy than what we have today. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him, and that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep his commands as he declared that he will set you uh, in praise, fame, and honor high above all nations, right? Again, this just national thing here. He has made, and that you will be a people holy to your Lord, your God, as he promised. Not to get ahead of myself too much, but these are the exact same words that the Apostle Peter is going to use in 1 Peter. He's going to make us, these Gentiles, now he's going to graft us in and he's going to make us a holy nation. But what does that mean? Is, this, is there some kind of national pride that we are to have then with this? What's going on? And maybe one of the questions that we ask, is this plan still valid for Christians today? Should we then, as a church, try to seek to reinstate a theocracy? Should we set amongst ourselves our own rules? Should I fine people for not coming to church? Should we have a tax, not, not one that we want to give from the abundance of what God has given, but, but actually tax you? Because this is what's historically been done for the majority of Christendom. And one of my favorite uh, authors on this is Roger Williams in 1644. So before we declared independence, again, we declared independence in 1776. Fun fact, we didn't win our independence, didn't actually become a nation until 1783. It just kind of irks me when people are like, oh, we're, we became a nation in 1776. No, we didn't. No, we did not. False. Fact check that. Roger Williams says this. He literally wrote the book on separation of church and state, okay? Roger Williams, in, a, in his book, a, pre, a Plea for Religious Liberty, this guy was a radical, and people called him that. John Quincy Adams said he is a radical, he is a revolutionary, but they meant that in very derogatory terms. They're saying this guy is upsetting the status quo. Because why? Because at that point, I'll get into it, but they had this idea that the church should run the state. He says this. It is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, something's changed because of Christ. It should have been a theocracy, but it's not anymore. A permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, and anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. Williams continues, that's, I'm actually uh, quoting my, myself. This was a paper I wrote a long time ago in seminary. I meant to edit that out, I apologize. But a uh, little writing tip, if you, 
this is a way to take up more space when you double space, because if you don't have Williams continues, it's got to be a block quote, you know what I'm saying? And it takes up less rooms. This is a way to just fill it up a little bit more. So it was kind of a little cheat that I did or laziness. I don't know what you'd call it, but Williams continues. And they are only to be fought against with that sword, which is only in soul matters able to conquer, to wit, the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. Right? He's saying we don't, we don't build armies, and yet that's exactly what has been done up until he writes this since 1644. We had the Holy Roman Empire. There was a state, and even the 13 colonies in our, in our nation back in the day were all different uh, denominations of churches, and they enforced religious law. They fined people. And so he would look at Romans chapter 13 and say that it's the government's job to protect with the sword, not the church's. That's not, how, that's not how the church should work. And so we got to enforce different laws. And so he actually took the Ten Commandments, and this might be a, a two kingdoms thing, which we're going to look at in depth next week. Um, but he said that you take the first four Ten Commandments, and they're about God's relationship with man. So love God with all of your heart. Don't make any images of God. Those different things. He would say the church has no right to enforce those. The state has no right to enforce those. But the remaining, remainder six of those Ten Commandments are man to man. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet, all those different things. And he says, but the government does have the authority to enforce those laws. But he says, just because people obey good morals doesn't make them Christian. Christening makes not Christians or forced religion stinks in the nostrils of God. So no, theocracy is not a thing and we should not be pursuing that. That's not what God has instituted. And actually, it's almost the exact opposite as, again, this progressive revelation as he's going to reveal. But what we're going to see in the second point, I've got eight points. I've got eight chunks of scripture. Where we're going to go back and forth. Point, scripture, point, scripture, point, scripture. Just walk through the Bible. So Israel rejects God as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is the high priest. He is kind of God's... Uh, uh, a voice box, if you will, to the nation. And at this point, they are still a theocracy. All right, Samuel's kind of in charge. He's the main religious leader, but it's not a power thing for him. He's just doing what God has asked him to do. Samuel is a great man. But what's interesting is that this is going to happen. Samuel's born around 1100 BC, and the theocracy of God was appointed approximately around 4000 BC. So for almost 3,000 years, the Israelites have been under God's rule. But now something happens right here. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The names of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served in Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways, and they turned uh, aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Nothing like our political system these days. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. We want to be like them. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen, to all the people are saying to you, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. 
after 3,000 years of God ruling and everything that he has done for them, they reject him. And I threw this, I'm allowed to use these things now, right? Holy shnikes that he just said, you've rejected A lot of you are too old to even know who this is, Tommy boy, I know it's old school. But did you really just say what I think you just said? You're going to reject God as your ruler. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other people. And I don't normally do this, but I want to just stop right here and just ask this question. Practically, what aspect of my life do I not want God to be my king? What aspect of my heart, what aspect of my my view on politics do I not want God to be my king? God, I know you said you are the hope of the world, that your son is the hope of the world, that your scripture is the supreme authority, but man, I really think, I really think that this guy, I think that this woman can fix this. Where do we not want God to be our king? Samuel continues, or excuse me, that God is now talking. He says, they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt. Right, that the moment God sets them free from slavery, they reject him. They start worshiping idols. They've forsaken me serving other gods and so they are doing it to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel told the words of the Lord before the people who were asking him for a king, and he said, this is what the king will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve him with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Right, what's what's he saying here? What's this king going to do? This king's going to have this wealth and he's going to have the most powerful implement of war at that time, this chariot, that he should be the one out leading the fight. And he says, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. He's going to put your sons out in front to protect himself, to protect his chariots, that your sons will be sacrificed for his benefit. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow the ground and reap the harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, right? This king's going to be a little sexist uh, in his assignments. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain. He's going to take it and of your vintage and will give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use and he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves, which is exactly what happens. We looked at Nehemiah. Remember, they're rebuilding the wall and the, and the kings, the rulers, they said, oh, you can't pay your debt to me. You can't pay your tax to me. You're going to become my slaves. And they start enslaving their own people. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. They reject him. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Right? He just explained, this is what's going to happen. They said, no. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And it's just not what happens. The very first king, King Saul, doesn't go and fight Goliath. A little boy named David goes and does that. Right off the bat. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them, and give them the king. And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. 
So then this is going to happen. You're going to have Saul being stated right after this verse, King Saul, the first king of Israel. But he's going to do some really dumb things, and he's going to try to act like a priest when he shouldn't be, and he's going to do some priestly things, but he's now a king, and he's only supposed to function as a king, but he's not a good guy. And so he loses the power of God, the Holy Spirit leaves, and then they choose David. God chooses David this time instead of letting the Israelites choose their king. But what happens is Israel's understanding of the Messiah happens now in 2 Samuel, so just not that much further along in the story as far as chronologically, but now Samuel's still the high priest, but now there's a king that he's under, and now it's going to be David. And so Samuel says these words to David. This is the Davidic covenant. But this is how Israel is listening. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with the ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to secede you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod and and by wicked men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever because of or before me and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And so this is why, and again, if you're not new to the Bible, there's, there's this guy in the New Testament whose name is Saul. And he is a persecutor of the Christians. He's a fanatic. He's a radical because he's reading the storyline this way. That David, some physical descendant of David, is actually going to sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. So this guy, Jesus, shows up and he starts claiming that he's the king of the Jews. Even though, he's yes, he's a descendant of David, but you're not actually my king because you're saying blasphemous things. You're saying you're, you're God and that your kingdom is not going to be of this, of this world. And so Saul goes out and kills followers of Jesus because this is the storyline that he's following, that it's going to be a physical kingdom. So then what does Jesus teach about his kingdom? I read these verses last week, so I'm not going to really get into them a lot, but Pilate, this is the night that Jesus is going to be crucified. Pilate, a Roman leader, magistrate, uh, that when he went back inside of the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? And he says, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me, right? Why would the religious leaders hand Jesus over to him? Because he was saying he was the king. But then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. So when they came to him in the garden and one of the disciples takes a sword and chops his ear off, Jesus says, stop, no more. And then he picks up the ear and heals the persons who, who got, who's got their ear chopped off. Why? Because his kingdom's not of this world. He said, if it was, we would have fought. It's not what this is. But now my kingdom is from another place. Such Jesus teaching on his kingdom. But then what's amazing is the disciples still think it's physically political. So Jesus is before a pilot. They condemn him to death. He's crucified. He's murdered. He's laid in a tomb. He's buried for three days. He then raises from the dead. You'd think at that point his disciples would start going, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. Maybe his kingdom isn't of this world. Maybe his kingdom actually is 
this faith, this little faith like a mustard seed that will grow into this large tree. What? But that's not what happens. What do they, what do, they do? It says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you, at, are you at this time now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That even now he's resurrected and he says, all authority is mine on heaven and on earth. And they go, wow, are you now going to make this a physical kingdom? Are you going to rule and reign? And he said to them, it is not for you, right? Lord, are you going to do this? He says, no, 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 it's not for you. No, no, the times, not going to do this right now. The dates the father has set by his own authority. But you, disciples, will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes on you. And, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to all the ends of the earth. They still think it's political. They still think it's physical. But then Jesus, though, right after this, the next verses, Jesus is going to claim his dominion. It says, after this, he was taken up before their very eyes and the cloud hid them from their sight. Think of, I don't know, any, any movie, any play, any, any book you've read that when there's a king and he's taken a prince or a princess or the new queen or the new king out in front of them, they, what do they do? They show, them, they show them the land, right? Think about uh, Mufasa, right? Taking Simba up to the highest point, right? And he says, all that the sun touches is gonna be your land, right? Satan does this as he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He takes him up to the, the highest pinnacle and says, look out there, all of these kingdoms could be yours. And right here, Jesus in majestic glory says, no, 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 you don't understand. Everything on earth and everything on heaven is mine, and I'm going to ascend into the heavens, and I'm going to look at my kingdom. I own everything. And as they were looking, again, this is Acts chapter 1, and as they were looking intently up into the sky where he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven, that someday that that king is going to return and he's actually then at some point going to make that throne his. And so what's the church's mandate? We talked about this in week one, but now, where are we now? Are we to then make a kingdom, make an army and go and conquer people in the name of Jesus? No, the church's mandate, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey, obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is our mandate? Our mandate is to go and teach everything that Jesus has taught us to baptize them, to see new believers and to see the ultimate gospel, the authority of Christ change everything in their lives. That's what we're called to do. And when that happens, when lives go from death to life and change happens, then those things and, and things that we would disagree with maybe people in the political sphere to say that starts to change now because I'm a, I'm a new creation in Christ. So that's the church's mandate. It says this, the kingdom of God will be established and to quote, Hamilton Porter, better known as Ham, forever. 
The kingdom of God is going to be established forever. Listen to how many times this word is used in Revelation chapter 11. When we, when we get to the end, when we see Jesus seated on his throne, when he takes back this physical earthly kingdom, what's going to happen? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices. Again, I don't know everything that's going on in the book of Revelation. I think, again, like I said, someday we'll, we'll preach through this. But one thing I do know when you read through the book is it's going to be loud. Whatever the uh, end times look like, it's going to be loud because that word loud is used a lot. There were loud voices in, heavens which, in the heavens which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Right? This is what biblical progression, this is what a biblical theology of the scripture means. Thanks, I've got a runaway child here. Thank you, appreciate that. That we start to begin, we see this theocracy, we see Israel reject God as their king, we see Jesus show up as God and say, no, 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 I do have a kingdom and I'm establishing my kingdom, but it's not physical, not, not yet. And we see him claim his dominion as he ascends and then now we get here where Jesus takes back what is rightly his. And these elders are saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign the nations, right now, this is a physical national thing. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And so again, we get to this idea of how the gospel changes everything. So even within our own political mindset and landscape, that even politically, as we look at this, we listen to what the gospel says and Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world and yet we are to go into the world, not love the world, but to love people in the world enough to share the gospel with them, to see their lives transformed by the gospel. But then we live it, we go and we do something. Commitment to this creation mandate of loving your neighbor and going into the world and teaching them everything that Christ has taught us. And in doing so, we see human flourishing in a number of areas. Two years ago, I quoted one of our elders from downtown, Brian Freeman, who's a lawyer. I don't even know where this quote came. I don't know how I got this quote, but I got it from him somehow. This is what he said, though. And I don't know if it was an email or something, but I grabbed it. But he says this. In our political moment, again, this is 2018. It's two years ago. This is... A lot has changed since then. In our political moment, those who think differently or vote differently are viewed as the enemy. Someone to be beaten and shown to be wrong and misguided. But the gospel would say we are to love our neighbors, extend grace, and be long-suffering, and turn the other cheek. We as a church have a huge opportunity to model gospel civility, if that's a thing. To me, that means intellectual humility. Willingness to admit that we don't know all the answers or how policies ought to work. That heart posture seems sorely lacking in our discourse in the way of relating to others in this area. We have a real chance to be countercultural for Jesus here. In Lower Town, this is where I want us to be. 
I want us to be countercultural because I want us to be able to listen, to have dialogue with people, to again, read and think like an adult when it comes to politics or any other issue that we're going to be talking about and that we have talked about. We have an opportunity to be intellectually, humil- humil- <laughs> intellectually humble. <laughs> so that was a good one to mess up on. I am very humble intellectually, I'll tell you that. <laughs> now we have a chance here. And there's a lot of different avenues. And again, next week, we're gonna, I'm going to take this gospel theology here, this, this political uh, progressive revelation, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more and say, okay, boots on the ground. What are, so what are we supposed to do? How should we act? Okay, if the gospel changes everything, if I believe the gospel and I'm sharing the gospel, are there other things that we ought to be doing or should be doing? I think the answer is yes. So in gospel application, Have I rejected God as my king in any way? I just want us to just, again, pause there and just ask that question. Have I rejected God as my king in any way? Is there any area of my life where I say, "Mm, no, God? Because what he is saying, there's nothing that we have done or no part of our life where he says, that's not mine. And we go, "Mm, I think this thing will fix it. I think this will satisfy do you put too much stock in political aspects? Maybe, maybe not enough. We'll talk about that next week. So that's the application. So let me go ahead and pray, and then I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and we'll have a chance to take communion. I'll say a word on that after we pray. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again that you're seated on your throne. I thank you that your son is there with you, that he has ascended into the heavenlies, and he's seated at your right hand, a position of power and authority. And so, God, we do wait. We long for that day when Jesus will return and say, yeah, now is the time for me to reign. I'm going to rule right now. So, God, would you help us to be patient? Because we know that you are patient, you are long-suffering, so that no one would perish, that more people can hear the good news, the gospel, that their lives can be transformed by the mercy and blood of your Son. So God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing and what you will do. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a communion, and I've got those, um, the, the, the juice and the wafer, and if you weren't able to grab one, it's in the back or as you walk in. And all I would ask is you're a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. All I would ask is that you say, yes, Jesus is king of my life. And yes, there's things that I need to repent of, and not every moment by moment by moment is he king. And he's not in my own life that I choose to sin, I choose to suffer, I choose to reject him as king. So I would love for you to partake of those elements with us. There's nothing magical about these. It doesn't wash away any sin. All it does is simply lets us remember what it is that Christ has done for us.